The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Listen now, my friends, for God's word to you as it comes to us from Leviticus chapter 16. And here we find a description of a ritual performed by Aaron, the high priest, to absolve people of their sin. Leviticus 16, beginning with verse 7. Aaron shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning with the first verse, this reading is from the Message Translation. Jesus went across to Mount Olives, but he was soon back in the temple again. Swarms of people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The religious scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in an act of adultery they stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, The sinless one among you, go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away, one after another, beginning with the eldest. The woman was left alone, Jesus stood up and spoke to her, Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way. From now on, do not sin. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. When I was in the ninth grade, my English class was assigned to read a sto short story by Shirley Jackson entitled The Lottery. Okay, I want to just see a show of hands. How many of you had to read that story? 
Okay, that story hurt my 14-year-old heart. <laughs> Seriously, the lottery sticks in my head as a particularly painful moment in high school. And if you remember high school the way I remember high school, that's saying something. <laughs> Originally published in The New Yorker in 1948, the lottery describes an annual ritual in a small, unnamed American town. Each year, on a festive summer morning, the locals gather for a lottery. A cheery mood prevails. People chat and talk about a picnic to come. Children wa wander around the village green, collecting stones. Eventually, though, everyone is called together. Each family sends one member forward to participate in the lottery by drawing a slip of paper from a box. On this occasion, the winner is the Hutchinson family. Mr. Hutchinson draws a slip of paper marked with a dark spot. His family then participates in a second drawing. All five members of the Hutchinson family pull slips from the box, and this time it is Tess Hutchinson, the family's matriarch, who draws the dark spot. She protests, but to no avail. The story ends as neighbors and family members gather around Tess and begin to throw stones at her. They bludgeon the life out of Tess Hutchinson as she weakly repeats, it isn't fair, it isn't right. When the lottery first appeared in the New Yorker, scores of people wrote furious letters of protest to the publication. Many just canceled their subscription. To this day, the New Yorker reports that they received more angry responses to the lottery than any other piece of fiction or nonfiction that they've ever published. Back in the ninth grade, I remember gasping when I got to the final page. I was shocked by the story's brutal conclusion. What kind of sick community was this? And, and why would anyone write a story with such a grim ending? Of course, the sad fact, the tragic fact, that ninth grade me could not imagine, is that the lottery act accurately describes an impulse running through the veins of human society. Hold on to that unpleasant thought. We'll come back to it in a minute. <laughs> Today's passage from the book of Leviticus describes a ceremony that has appeared on Hebrew calendars for millennia, always on the 10th day of the seventh month of the year, the Day of Atonement or as it is called in contemporary Judaism, Yom Kippur. In its original form, as described by Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement was the occasion when the temple's priests, led by Aaron, would offer sacrifices to God as a way to cleanse people of their sins. This ritual cleansing was a 
bloody affair, at the heart of the ceremony, two young goats were brought forward. The high priest would cast lots, and the winning goat, the winning goat would be sacrificed to the Lord. The other goat would be led out into the wilderness and abandoned there. This second goat, the text says, carried with it the sins of all the people. This second goat, the text says, was to be sent to Azazel. Now, wait a minute, Azazel? Who or what was Azazel? And, and that, my friends, is where things begin to get a bit murky. Some interpreters claim that Azazel was an evocative term for a rough place, for the desert. Other scholars think that Azazel was the name of a spirit or a demon who lived out in the desert. And then there are apocryphal writings like the book of Enoch that suggest that Azazel was the name of a fallen angel. What does all this mean? Well, you know people. Down through the centuries, they have loved to engage in all kinds of spooky and silly speculation about Azazel. And yes, comic book fans out there, there is a villain in the Marvel Universe who bears this mysterious ancient name. But I digress. I actually do have a point here. Some early translators of the Bible decided that the mysterious Azazel wasn't a name at all. They believed that Azazel was just a funny Hebrew verb, meaning to run away or escape. So instead of translating this verse, this goat is destined for Azazel, they wrote, this is the goat who escapes, or simply the escape goat. William Tyndale, in his 1530 translation of the Bible into English, shortened the phrase even further. He called this poor creature the scapegoat, and it stuck. I find it fascinating that this, this made-up word has so effectively worked its way into people's everyday conversations. And remarkably, down through the centuries, it's preserved the original meaning of the story. The scapegoat is memorable to folk because even though it was blameless, it was said to bear the transgressions of an entire nation on its back. What do you think it says about us? about humankind, that we actually have a word to describe someone who suffers while being blameless. Someone who suffers for the sins of others. In fact, not only do we have this word in our lexicon, but we use it all the time. Again and again, we say, so-and-so is a scapegoat, and we, we point to an innocent person who's being punished for the flaws, faults, and failings of the wider society. American 
Philosopher and cultural critic, Rene Girard, has taken note. <laughs> In a book fittingly entitled Scapegoat, Girard suggests that Leviticus 16 highlights a dynamic that runs through every culture on the face of the earth. When tensions within a culture reach a breaking point, Girard argues its members respond in one of two ways. One, with all-out war, or two, with scapegoating. Scapegoating, says Girard, is a bizarre psychosocial mechanism in which a community's deep-seated desire for violence suddenly comes to focus on an individual or a subset of that society. We've seen this bizarre psychosocial mechanism manifest in our workplaces, at school, and even in our families. Our history books brim with stories of scapegoating, the Salem witch trials, the wrongful execution of Italian immigrants Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti in 1923 in Boston. And of course, the scapegoating and murder of European Jews during the Nazi Holocaust. It's as if there's, there's something in us that, that yearns to blame others for life's frustrations and even for our own mistakes. Something in us wants to make someone else pay a price. Reverend Werner Ramirez recently reminded me of Steve Bartman's story. On October 14th of 2003, Steve Bartman, a huge Chicago Cubs fan, was attending game six of the National League Championship Series at Chicago's Wrigley Field between the Cubs and the Florida Marlins. In the eighth inning, with the Cubs holding a somewhat comfortable lead, a long fly ball was, was hit to left field. It was a foul ball. Like most baseball fans, Steve Barton reached out to try and catch it, and so did about eight other fans, people on either side of Bartman, and so did Moises Alou, the Cubs left fielder, who was leaping to try and catch the ball. Slicing toward these fans and this leaping player, the ball bounced off a different sets of hands and away from Alou's glove, and fell harmlessly into the stands. Players for the Cubs screamed, fan interference, but the umpire shook his head, play on. It was a routine play, a foul ball, play on. Except for this, the Marlins went on to score eight runs that inning. The Marlins came from behind and won that game, and the next night, the Marlins beat the Cubs again to win the National League pennant and denied the Cubs an historic victory and a chance to go to the World Series. Cubs fans were livid. And despite the fact that 
various members on their team had made numerous mistakes on the way to losing both the game and the series, fans and many members of the media focused their ire on Steve Bartman. Even before the game was over, people pelted Bartman and others in his section with abuse and beer. Worried about his safety, a squad of security members was dispatched to escort this lifelong fan from the stadium, and that was just the start of Bartman's troubles. Someone recognized him on television because they played the clip over and over. Someone identified him to the press. His name was published in newspapers, and within days, Bartman began to receive ugly letters and even death threats. For years, years, police cars needed to sit outside his home to protect Bartman and his family. Does it make sense to threaten the life of someone for trying to catch a foul ball. Well, Cubs fans were angry. They wanted someone to take the blame for their painful loss. And, and Bartman was their best candidate. Bartman, a man who loved, loved, loved the Cubs, became Chicago's scapegoat. What really lies? under the surface of our put on a clean shirt and go to church and pass the peace demeanor. Is Rene Girard right? Is Tess, Tess Hutchinson's fate in the lottery not so far-fetched after all? Is there in each of us a bizarre psychosocial mechanism waiting to assign blame and to extract vengeance. When something's not right with our lives, are we hardwired to offload our sins onto other people? Well, what's the alternative? Today's reading from the Gospel of John offers an answer. Chapter 8 of John's Gospel describes a classic moment in Christ's ministry. Jesus is somewhere outside the temple in Jerusalem. A large group of people has come to hear him teach, and then, in the midst of this lesson, a group of religious leaders rush into the rabbi's outdoor classroom. They bring a woman with them. They push her into the center of the class, and they proclaim, teacher, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. Moses, in the law, gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? She's drawn the black spot, Jesus. You know the rules of the lottery. It's time to gather rocks. The gospel tells us that these religious leaders present the woman hoping to trap Jesus. Maybe he'll say something incriminating, something that might lead to a double header, two stonings for the price of one. But instead, Jesus bends down. 
and starts riding in the sand. What is he doing? Why is he riding? What is he riding? Is Jesus giving up? Has he been silenced by these rival authorities? Or is Jesus stunned by the audacity of those seeking to do violence to this woman? Surely Jesus knows what the law of Moses says, what it really says. Leviticus 20 says that if two people are caught in adultery, both shall be punished. So where's the man? Maybe this is the question Jesus was writing in the sand. Where's the dude who was involved in this tryst? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus looks at this group of men, men who have decided that it's their job to pass judgment on a solitary woman, and I wonder if our Lord sees something both awful and familiar. In this broken world, women shoulder an unfair share of the blame and burden. Far too often, women are easy targets for those looking for a scapegoat. In the face of this, Christ's tranquil demeanor, calmly riding in the sand, models something Silently taking in the hard-heartedness and the, and the bloodlust of the crowd, Jesus exhibits peace. At first, Christ's calm doesn't seem to make a difference. The angry throng keeps badgering him for an answer. They, they demand justice, violent justice. And in the face of their ultimatums, Jesus finally stands. He looks at the fuming crowd and he asks them to consider whether their righteous rage is really all that righteous. He says, okay, you claim to want to purge sin from this community, so let's do this. Why doesn't somebody who's managed to stay pure step forward let the person here who is without sin throw the first stone. And then Jesus goes back to riding in the sand. There's irony here. <laughs> Beautiful irony, perspective-changing irony, gospel irony, because, <laughs> do, you, do you catch it? The only sinless soul, the one person Pure enough to chuck a stone is kneeling in the dirt, drawing stick figures like a child at play. Faced with this uncommon gentleness, with Christ's tenderness, the mob slowly disperses. They've been momentarily defanged. Or better yet, they've been exposed exposed by the grace of God. In the end, the winds of grace are all that remain. 
And it is grace that disperses this crowd so that when Jesus finishes scribbling in the dirt, only the woman remains. Bemused, <laughs> Jesus asks, Sir woman, where are they? <laughs> Does no one condemn you? No one, she responds. Neither do I, says Jesus. Go on your way. Sin no more. I want to conclude by pointing out something that I think is obvious and still worth noticing. Jesus trusts this woman. I wonder, in the midst of all our cultural fights, if our society might learn to do the same. I wonder if we might dispense with our infernal need for scapegoats. The grace of Christ attend you. The love of God surround you. The comfort of the Holy Spirit keep you so that you may live in faith, abound with hope, grow in wisdom, and so that you might resist the urge to scapegoat in this complicated and conflicted world. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.